0: My name is Vesta Gull. If you are reading this, I have been murdered
1: by God. I believe he murdered a girl named Magda, as well. Her body is probably buried on the little island in the lake across from my cabin. Please feed my dog. Hello and welcome to How to Win the Lottery. A podcast book club. This is episode one, "Death in Her Hands" by Otessa Moshfag. I'm Joey Lewandowski.
0: I'm Bobby Fisher. Bob, what is this podcast? Every two weeks, we analyze a book like book club style. Um, we've both read the book. Hopefully, audience members have read the book and can email in and talk to us about it.
1: Lottery at CageClub.me.
0: And we just p- sort of pick the book apart, and then and then who knows? Maybe as we go on, there will be more segments that we figure out along the way, and there will be new things,
1: games, surprises.
0: Yeah, games and surprises. Crimes. Crimes.
1: Well, we have crimes today.
0: Yeah, well, one crime.
1: I still don't know what it is. We're ending every episode with a crime. Not a crime we're doing, or is it a crime we have done? Uh, I don't know how this works exactly. Okay,
0: so at the end of every episode, I'm going to say a crime that I have done recently that (laughs) I think that you, the audience, should go out and do. So it's it's both a crime that I'm admitting to and a crime that I'm uh,
1: eating and abetting to. Yeah,
0: it, it's a crime that I will be arrested for conspiracy of this crime because I'm talking you guys into it. This is not what the podcast is about. <laughs> However, at the end of every podcast, this will happen.
1: But honestly, it's it, you know I don't want to down like put down what are what we're doing a minute into our first podcast but the crime is more interesting than what we're doing
0: it's the hook yeah it's like check scour your local papers see if this crime has been committed
1: Aryan man arrested for a series of crimes he confessed to
0: i i thought you said Aryan man and and i i was gonna say not that kind of crime <laughs>
1: Death in Her Hands, Odessa Moshfag. This is the second time you read this book, right?
0: Second time that I've read this book. The first
1: time that I read this book, you had me read, I think we might have mentioned on the the pilot episode and our little intro and our teaser, you have been giving me books to read for the better part of two years now. You had me read her book, My Year of Rest and Relaxation, last year, and I loved it. It was one of my favorite books from last year. And so this was one that you said, it was a new release that came out last year, I think. Last year, yeah.
0: It's worth noting that there are similarities between this and the last book, My Year of Rest and Relaxation. But they're also sort of, like, radically different, too.
1: What I found, like, the I think the most obvious one, maybe, is that it's largely a woman by herself on her own, somehow propelling the narrative without someone to talk to. I mean, like, My Year of Rest and Relaxation has her friend come over, and here, you know, Vesta has her dog, Charlie. But, yeah. like, largely it's a woman by herself, kind of by choice.
0: And the, the major differences are maybe... Um... You know, one is sort of an exploration of youth in a way, uh, <laughs> and and the whoa, 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 what?
1: No, okay. So, part of the part of the podcast is that at the end we're gonna do like fantasy casting of like who we envision because you know Bob and I talking about with my year in rest, rela- rest and relaxation we're like oh Anya Taylor Joy maybe or like Margot Robbie like because that character is like stunningly beautiful and like young and 20 something and like can take New York by storm but chooses not to we have this idea Bob has this idea which I like and it's we're gonna do casting we're gonna do like a dream casting or ideal casting or whatever like if this became a movie who would you picture I'm like okay so it's a, it's a woman okay cool and then like you know a couple pages in she's like you know a woman of my age of 72 too, and I was like, I don't know I don't know who to cast as a seventy two year old woman? Like, this is not in my oeuvre, my repertoire, because so many of the books I've been reading have been young people. Like, all of Brett Easton Ellis' books, in the most part, are, like, 20-somethings, and the Jay McInerney book that you had me read, and My Year of Rest and Relaxation. And so I have this, like, stable of, like, actors in the things that I watch, and then it's like, okay, a 70-year-old woman, and then, like, a 70-year-old, like, ethnic, kind of, like, ambiguously ethnic woman, and I'm like, this is a challenge.
0: Well, so I think that that's also a good point, because movie-wise and and in literature, those stories are often not told. They're, like, not often is the main character of any given story a 72-year-old woman um, because yeah. we tend to want to tell the stories of young people.
1: They're sexier. Like, yeah. Like, the stories are sexier. They're, than, like,
0: yeah. you know, it's it's got all of the, the trappings of what we're told that we're supposed to want in this world and we're supposed to sort of detest aging and um, think that, like, once we get to be 72, there are no stories left to tell of our lives, which is obviously... um You know, obviously not true. This book coming after my year of rest and relaxation, which is an exploration, at least in part, an exploration of youth and stuff. And and this is on sort of the opposite end of that spectrum where it's an exploration of being death. Yeah, death and being old. Um, uh, They're both solitary books that are largely internal but you have this uh, uh, this narrative that we just don't we just don't get that that often.
1: And to keep in mind, the whole first season of this, these ten episodes, and the full reading list is available on the. I'll put it in the description for this episode too. But on CageClub.me/Lottery, you can find out what the books we're covering are. But it's all about processing pain and the way that people have hurt us. I mean, that's true of twenty-something stories too. But like Vesta has a whole a literal lifetime of people. Like especially one person in particular we talk about. Like her husband, she's lived a tough life and seems like. Free in a way that I don't think you realize he grasps like that the full depths and breadth of until like toward the end, and then by the end of it, you're like by the end, like by the time you realize that, it's like everything else is falling apart, yeah. So it's this interesting kind of balance of like this woman finally is free, and yet uh, things are bad,
0: yeah. That sounds that that's accurate. So, what do you want to do? Do you want to recount the plot a little yeah, bit? Yeah, sure, okay, go. <laughs>
1: We start out with this woman, uh, Vesta Gull, like the ocean bird, is a quote from there. Vesta Gull. Walking her dog, Charlie. So, okay, here's a question. I'm already getting off topic here. So we find out that she has moved from this other town to this, other, this, this small town, and she hates the small town. But it's just she needed like a fresh start and she's basically wealthy ish from somewhere else or like was fine over there and this is like a poor town and so she is living like a queen here at what a, at a campground that used to be a Girl Scout camp. Yeah. And I kept waiting for that to like pay off in a way like oh, there was like a murder that was there or something and like that never like I thought that there was something like nefarious because like people kind of it seems like people are whispering about this Girl Scout camp and like that doesn't actually happen.
0: Right. It, yeah. I think it's vibes. Right. It's it's like Like sleepaway camps and places like that, like have a history of horror and uh, like at least in pop culture. So there's like this energy about it that is, uh, you know, it's lakeside, it's isolated, but it's like the sort of thing that in in movies you have these slashers coming around and, and cutting people up.
1: And it's supposed to be like a place of innocence that turns out to be anything but, right? So And
0: also it's invested with youth again. Yeah. So so it's this place that has like a, a youthful energy. I think when she buys it initially there's drawings on the walls and stuff like that. Um so it's in it has this uh it's almost haunted by youth. And then um like as we as we stated, she's very much not a young person anymore.
1: Right. And so Vesta is walking her dog Charlie, and I will just spoil my casting for Charlie. I was picturing uh, Vincent from Lost, the dog from Lost as as Charlie. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. Uh <laughs> I don't know that you have to cast famous
1: dogs. I did though. Okay. Golden Lab. Anyway, she finds a note on the floor. Uh, Thor's floor's not it's in that's outside. The ground. And it says, Her name was Magda, nobody will ever know who killed her. It wasn't me. Here is her dead body. This sets her off on a quest to solve a murder mystery. That might not even be a murder mystery. Right, which she, in, in the story
0: notes, uh, it's a rather dark, damning way to begin a story, the pronouncement of a mystery whose investigation is futile. Because it says in the note that you'll never find her body.
1: Yep. Right? The note certainly didn't promise any happy ending. Which, the book doesn't have a happy ending.
0: Getting ahead of ourselves, but but yes, the the, the book does not. Or, or maybe it does. I don't know.
1: But what I think is interesting about the way that this is all introduced is that we should just get to it. That there's a couple different ways, like, things are not necessarily right with Vesta whether it's dementia whether it's just getting older and slower and like less mentally acute or aware or whatever past trauma past violence past abuse or just like an obsession like an irrational obsession with like narrative that doesn't exist but we don't know that at first like this just seems like a woman walking through the woods and then it's not until like you kind of i don't even know like it's such like a seamless sort of transition into like oh no like things are things are kind of strange here
0: so she starts Inventing a story that goes around this, and at first it seems like she knows that there's a story, but then it sort of blends into, like around page 36, she she refers to the note as the note that she found from Blake. And Blake is this character that she has invented as someone who was a friend of Magda, the girl who is killed. Um, and she referring it to it as the note that I found from Blake. It's like the story has already become the story that she's told to herself has already become real to herself, and it's it's no longer just a story. These are characters that exist in the real world that she is exchanging notes with, and and uh, they they exist physically.
1: It it's the kind of thing that is harmless but i think because we're in it's hard to think about this like if if you had a friend who was like "Oh, i found a note in the woods and i'm like imagining this whole backstory like it's kind of it's kind of cutesy in a way it's like oh like you're being creative like it's like creative writing in a certain way and then because we're in her head it's like she's all consumed by this and this narrative basically plays out over the course of like 36 hours like it's kind of like a compressed timeline right and things get bad or weird in a hurry Yeah.
0: You had said earlier a little bit when we were talking off mic about this being relevant to, uh, like, sort of the QAnon. Yeah. An idea of QAnon. So talk about that.
1: I have largely tried to steer clear of that because I think it's scary. And I don't think that, like, exploring that is really... Like, I think it's important to not know the enemy or whatever, but, like, understand, like, what people... Because, like, it's a big thing. Like, it's a noteworthy thing. And I think people who dismissed it as just like a, oh, that's just like weirdos on the internet. It's like, oh no, like that's like suburban soccer moms who somehow have become infected. And I'm not just singling them out, but like anybody, like it, it could, it, anybody. It's this desire, I think, for meaning and purpose and narrative in a world where none of us know anything about anything. Like, of course, like you couldn't get that job or because your guy didn't win the presidency. Cause like there's this cabal of people or whatever. It's easy. I think conspiracy theories in general are appealing because there's something kind of sexy about it. And like, you know, we have another podcast on the network, Hard to Believe, that's all about this kind of stuff. But it's like how in the 90s, like the X-Files was appealing because like we were kind of in a more tranquil, like pre-9-11 time. And like our biggest worry was like, well, what if there were aliens out there? And then like we just kind of like dug into that. But now that, like, the world is worse or maybe just more apparent that it's worse or something, I don't know, there's, there's, I think, a need and, like, this, like, explaining everything away and becoming so invested in what is pretty clearly, I think, a false narrative or that has at least has no basis in reality that's all imagined in your head. But to her, there's nothing more real.
0: Yeah, I'm going to pause you there. I, I just want to note that earlier it sounded like Joey said that QAnon was sexy. Let's, <laughs> Let's keep that in mind. Ladies... This guy's this guy likes QAnon. on but yeah so so like th- theoretically <laughs> the thing that you're kind of talking about is stems from this thing called post-structuralism a philosophy that uproots the idea of objective reality right it recognizes all systems of values qualitative and quantitative as uh, being relative uh, so like when we think of history and yeah. and reality yeah. and all things that are tethered to truth that like quote unquote truth tends to come from a hierarchical power. Um so it's a manufactured narrative. Um and this is on purpose politically speaking, uh, but not necessarily so. It's just like nature, it's the way the way things are. So the cultural expression of post structuralism is a thing called postmodernism, because the medium that we view truth view this quote unquote truth through is is language. So like when we when we talk about books like this, we're talking about postmodern books. Right. And language is a technology developed to articulate experience. But because experience is subjective and language is a system of signifiers meant to find common ground, language necessarily falls short of successfully describing reality, Uh, which is all to say that we're like using someone else's set of symbols to get as close to expressing our feelings as we possibly can. But ultimately, like if you buy into postmodernism and you should because its expression is increasingly obvious and relevant in the world we live in for all the reasons that Joey just said, you're basically saying. I know the things that I believe can never truly be known because reality is incoherent. Like, what this has to do with the book is that all signifiers are contextual, and the signifiers that Magda has around the town are the ones that she's shaping through her reality to make sense of the world that, that she lives in. And so while that might be not not be everybody's truth, that truth is relative to her and to her specific experience, right? Right. There is, like, another thing here that sort of fascinates me. Joey mentioned earlier about uh, the possibility of uh, Vesta having dementia, um, which I think is a real, a real way to read the book. It's certainly the way that I read the book the first time that I saw it, because it reminded me of people I've known in my life, which are, sure. like, older yeah, yeah. people whose minds have sort of decayed mm-hmm. and, and are connecting weird dots. They think that people have been in their houses. They think that something left behind in their room is a symbol for something but like it seems to me very much that dementia is actualizing postmodernism. like reality as a series of signifiers that shape something that is only relatively true based on a lifetime of lived context which is sort of like shattered and remixed by disordered by a disordered or diseased brain that's incapable of interpreting things with the same context as like quote-unquote normal people normal brain people but like i think Part of what postmodernism is saying is that, like, nobody really is a normal brain person. We all have, like, a completely distinct reality from everybody.
1: It's so abstract. Like, it's it's why people go to religion. It's why people do drugs. It's why people join cults. It's why people do whatever. It's because nothing makes sense, right? And they're just trying to find something. And, like, the thing that I keep—and we're sort of drifting from the book—but, like, the thing that I keep thinking about is, like, we agree that, like, this is red, right? But, like, what I see as red— you might see as blue or so you know it's just like there's like it's it's impossible to actually physically know like we both agree that this color of this thing is red but like what you see as red might not be at all what i see as red
0: i think that's a that's a really great example actually because contextually the audience whoever's listening to this has no clue what color that is so 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 when you say that it's red
1: yeah which it is red i'm not i could agree
0: with you it's not red it's blue he's lying it's it's not it's not it's not he's tricking you There is. He might not even be pointing at anything. You're trusting him because he's constructing the narrative that you're experiencing right now. And, like, I could agree that it's red, and that would back it up. That would make it sound more true, because now there are two people believing that it's red. But also, Joey and I might be colorblind. We might be all all, all sorts of different things, or we might just be interpreting it, or what we see as that. I mean, you could argue that that is maroon, I guess. Color is actually one of the most... Try to, like, ask someone what color a shirt is, and you'll get, like, six different answers, right? Like, that's a really good example of, of this
1: sort of thing. I think color is something where I'm, like, I'm not good at it. It's the same thing with, like, genre for film or for for music or for whatever. I'm, like, I don't, I don't know, but I also don't care. Like, I don't care. Like, as long as we agree—and this doesn't even matter that this is red— yeah. I'm fine with that. And like, we're just like, hey, that's kind of like, that's like rock music. It's like, well, it's more like post psychobilly, whatever. It's like, I don't think like, that doesn't interest me. Like, I just know I like it or I don't. Yeah. Kind of. We have a very, and maybe this goes back to what we were saying before. Like, there's a very, there's a hyper obsession. I think we all have with like classifying and describing everything. Life's too short, man. Walk your dog. <laughs> what?
0: I don't know the, the hyper specific and, and hyper Classifying things is is like a search for everyone to attempt to find context, right? Like if I, if you and I can agree that something is psychobilly, which is that what you said? Yeah.
1: yeah, I can't describe it, but I know it's a genre. Yeah, like
0: Reverend Horton Heat, that yeah, sort yeah. of thing. Okay, if, if if like you and I can agree on what is psychobilly, then we have a point of reference that we sure. can, that we can match, right? Vesta's point of references are. All over the map, right? right? She, her points of references are people in the town, but they're also, she's pinning signifiers to the people in the town that have nothing to do with them or their actions, their inventions of hers.
1: My takeaway from this, you could read this book and think it's one of the funniest books you've ever read. Like, if you don't have the context for understanding that something's not right in her head, she's saying and doing objectively kind of funny things But then you put it in the context of, like, this might be a woman who's slowly, like, losing her mind or has already lost her mind. I think that there's something that might take something different away from this. And it's the same thing, like, you know, she sees, like, her experiences are so very clearly in this book, in real ways and imagined ways, like, influenced and defined by a marriage to a man who treated her like absolute dog shit and, like, emotionally and neglected her and abused her and cheated on her and, like, admitted to cheating and, like... It just seems like everything she's doing, she might be fully sane. She might just have like, you know... Maybe she's finally processing the death of her husband because she still has his ashes, and like only now in the middle of this does she get rid of them. But it seems like she's been carrying them around for a long ass time.
0: And it's interesting that as she gets rid of his ashes, that seems to be when the her opinion of him starts to turn. Like she starts to m- like recognize more. I mean, it's there from the beginning. I have actually a list of here of her conflicts with Walter. If I if I can, yeah go for it. Okay. So one, he never let her show any emotions. He negated her humanity. The final words of the first chapter are that she moved to Levant so that she could do what she wanted uh because she's finally free from him walter her husband forbids her from using contraceptives
1: oh right yeah i wrote that down because it takes what it takes takes a woman something away right like it's just like a very like
0: maybe her vitality yeah i think that's the word number three walter likes mysteries because he's he can solve them before vesta proving that he's smarter than she is yep um which vesta uh which is not true but vesta allows him to think that on page 222, we have a quote from him that says, Later in bed, he'd groan and complain about a student or a colleague or some paper that was due, as though his work were so important and he was so put upon by all the trivialities in life. He had no ideas of the trivialities of life. Early on in our marriage, he'd pass those all on to me. I don't think he'd been to the grocery store for 30 years before he died. When Vesta doesn't enjoy sex with Walter, he calls her frigid. Walter manipulates his students, takes advantage of them, likely sleeps with them. And very, very late in the text, we find out that he also took advantage of Vesta, that he was twice her age when they met. She doesn't yeah. say how old she was, but the, the implication is that she was basically a child.
1: And maybe a student of her. And, st- and, and possibly, poss- a, student, possibly right? a student, yeah.
0: The book is largely about. Um, the accumulated damage that she's accepted from her relationship with Walter. And a lot of these things, she only really comes to recognize when she's sort of freed herself of his ghost, right? She's dumped his urn in the lake, and now she seem, feels like a lot more free to talk shit about him.
1: I don't know that she unburdens herself, but she shifts the burden to then, like, I wonder if I'm going to get in trouble, because I, I don't know if it's legal for me to have dumped ashes in a lake and, like, what do my neighbors think? But I think this is also, you know, you said earlier that she moved here because... She could, like, finally set on her own be free and do her own thing, right? Yeah. But it seems like that thing that she has done, like, and I think this is probably true of a lot of people, like, I've had that same kind of, like, I'm going to go somewhere, I'm going to move to a new city and, like, start a new thing and, like, be, be a new person. And, like, that's what she does. And then she just doesn't talk to anybody. Yeah, she completely and then isolates herself. then it's resentful of people for, like, not waving to her. It's like, but it seems like, based on, you know, how she's thinking, because we're literally in her head, that she was probably icy to them, like, that she believes that the world owes her something, maybe. Like neighbors didn't come to her but she didn't go to them well do
0: you want to go to list number two that I have which yeah. is just descriptions of people in the town yes <laughs> there's a description I, I didn't write down the actual description but it's
1: one thing I want to say though what I loved about this is that like she talks about how how shitty this town is, right? Mm. But she's like, at least we're not that place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was just very, very funny to me. Yeah. that, Like, no matter where she is, like, it's just, you know, whether it's Springfield or whatever, it's uh-huh. just like, at least we're not them. And it's like. Yeah, yeah.
0: Real Shelbyville vibes. Yeah. So, OK. So descriptions of people in town. There's a man at the convenience store who was shot in the face during Oh my God. accident. This is the um,
1: the craziest description in the book. Yeah.
0: Uh, I, I didn't write it down, though, because I'm. Oh, I have it. Hold on. Yeah, yeah. Let's hear it.
1: The man who worked there was middle aged and quiet and badly scarred. The left side of his face was deeply pocked and down the middle middle of his face over his nose, which was just a little jump of two downward-facing holes, was a rectangle of skin laid over his face like a carpet. If you asked me to guess where it came from, I would have said it from the man's forearm, since it seemed to have been shaved down and sunburnt and wrinkled in a way that men's arms would get if they were to shave them. That strange piece of skin was seamed up around the forehead and down both cheeks like a ventriloquist doll, and ended at his mouth, which was normal, maybe a bit browner than most. His chin seemed intact, unremarkable. When he turned to the left and only his right side was visible, he looked almost handsome, despite the lump of nose that in profile looked like a cat's. From the right, he had thick hair, his forehead and eye socket and cheekbones were finely contoured masculine, with one nice eye thoughtful and not unintelligent. His hair was carefully combed, I noticed, perhaps so much so, because his hairline on the left seemed to have been reconstructed. There was a weird geometry to it, with strands not all flowing in the right direction. I couldn't look at his left ear like a candle melted down to the bottom, and the nose, it was really awful. It was hard to look at him in the eye as I paid. Hunting accident, he'd said.
0: Yeah, so that's that. The, and and he's the guy that has the excuse, right? Because something bad happened to him. But the rest of the town, right? She's very judgmental of in, in the supermarket of heavy women licking the chocolate from the donuts uh, that they're holding from their fingers.
1: She seems, both Vesta and also Atesimashvig, the author, like, that's so much description for a man that largely plays no role in this book at whatsoever. Like, she kind of eventually injects him, like, maybe he kidnapped my dog.
0: Yeah, well, again, because I think, like, not, not again. I think right. this is probably the first time that I'm saying this. Um, We've
1: well, <laughs> thought it before. It's fine. Joey
0: just did like a, a sassy like head thing at me, as though I had wronged him in some way. Right? No, now. I was
1: I was in favor of you. Not. Oh, <laughs> I was defending you.
0: Okay. It's it's atmospherics, right? She's she's creating like an atmosphere of terror by creating a large group of people that that Vesta is surrounded by, who might not play a role in the plot of the book. But their presence and, and their, like...
1: Uh, the fact that they exist?
0: Yeah, their horror movie descriptions. Yeah. She's so, like, put out by the way that they look that she can't be comfortable anywhere in this town. Everywhere she feels put upon by other people's ugliness. Right? So she also describes the policeman as having flabby, parched faces. Um, local children are described as prematurely aged and bloated. A nice girl at the library who helps her at the computer has braces, eyes edged with deep crow's feet, mouth both lipless and fleshy. And then when this girl leaves, uh, Vesta notices that she's looking at the website for an abortion clinic. When a cop pulls over, she says, I can imagine his genitals all squashed up in those black slacks. She describes youngsters in hooded sweatshirts so baggy, even the pudgiest of them look like stick figures. Uh, She describes an old woman in soiled slippers who smells like rotting fish. Uh, and it's worth noting that at this point in the novel, Vesta herself has not showered, and she's she's got a bunch of dirt underneath her fingernails, and she's not looking great
1: herself. And she acknowledges that, and she's kind of like okay with it.
0: Yeah, she's not as judgmental of herself as she is of all these people in town because she can't. She's not witnessing herself accurately. Right. All these descriptions are, are sort of summed up by. Uh, Something that she says on page 159, which is that it was exciting to feel so much spite for everyone. Like, she's invigorated by how much she hates everyone that's around her, how much better she feels than them.
1: Which I think goes into the QAnon thing, which mm-hmm. is like, sure. not only is there some kind of greater, grander mythology here at play, but also I'm right and they're wrong and I'm smart and they're stupid and I'm good looking and they're all ugly. Or it's, also,
0: it's also a bit like she's possessed by Walter's ghost. Right. Like, it it feels like she's taking on the qualities of Walter that she herself recognized were bad in Walter when he was there, when he was around.
1: Which is in a narrative where she kind of acknowledges that ghouls exist. Yeah, that's right.
0: So talk... Say, say so say she, about that. she
1: decides so she goes to the library a couple times in this book and at one point she finds she wants to figure out how to solve a murder mystery and so she gets like this kind of like how to guide like how to write a murder mystery or whatever
0: which okay so I'm gonna interrupt you here actually how Otessa dare you? breakthrough novel was a book called Eileen which she notoriously and to which which pissed a lot of people off wrote that book by buying a how to write a bestseller novel and following it and writing like. I don't know if she followed the rules directly, because Eileen is not like a regular novel. It's still a pretty weird novel. But she is like, I think quoted somewhere as saying something along the lines of like, if all of these idiots out here can write a best selling novel, then I can write a best selling novel too. And so she did kind of the thing that Vesta is doing here, where she looked up the ways to write a best selling novel and then she just went and did that thing.
1: I love that. Why? So why did people hate that? Because, like, she was successful on a thing that anybody could do? Yeah, I
0: think it's—and I and also maybe that she called people idiots. And just, like, this idea that, like, you can't write literary fiction by using a guide. But it's, like, kind of—that's very, like, a very postmodern thing to do. It's sort of like a, an Olipo a thing to do. Like, you would see Harry Matthews do something like that. Like, or—, or uh, Lars von Trier and, and uh, Thomas Vinterberg doing Dogma 95 in the 90s, where sure. they set up all of these weird rules. Yep. For ha- and then like through creating a structure, they had to force themselves to be more creative within the context of that structure.
1: I'm also just thinking, because, dear, dear listener, I'm also watching for the first time The Simpsons and Seinfeld right now. And the Simpsons that I watched this morning, it's the Science Fair episode, and Lisa goes to all creatures great and cheap. And she asked for their smartest hamster. And he's like, this one writes mystery novels. And she's like, how does he do that? He's like, I don't know. And he starts at the end and works his way backwards. She's like, that's not what I was <laughs> So, you know, just pretty funny. So so Vesta goes to the library. I mean, my favorite part of this entire book is her relationship with Jeeves, of Ask Jeeves. Yeah, sure. I, I asked Jeeves, <laughs> which I just love. Just like such a wonderful, specific little detail. She goes there and she gets this book. And basically the book is like, come up with a list of suspects, like people who have a motive, people who would know or people who might profit or benefit from Magda's death. And so this is where she really, like, there's a, there's an entire chapter in this book that's basically Vesta's workbook, right, where, I think chapter three or four, where it's describing every character who, like, up to this point only kind of existed and still exists kind of just as an idea or a notion, but they're much more fully fleshed out. And this is where we finally understand that Blake and, like, Blake's role, Magda being, like, this 18 or 19-year-old, like, Belarusian woman who comes over here and works at a mcdonald's for minimum wage but like wants to break free and so she has to like find a place to stay because they're supposed to go back but she doesn't want to go back and like there's like this entirely complicated interwoven narrative like the note might just be from like a poem or something right like we don't know that this is actually a person that she has been staying in the basement for a hundred dollars a month of this Boy Blake, who's fourteen and in love with Magda, but like too young to fall in love or whatever. Daughter, or he's the son of Shirley, who's this woman who like it's just like this whole like interwoven thing that makes sense. Like they all have an interconnecting like if you're if she was actually writing a murder mystery, it's like a world that interconnects in a smart way. But she's this has to be what happened because like this is the only way it can happen. It's like no, like take a step back and think about it.
0: I think also like in 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 that context, we we sort of start to understand a little bit what vesta is doing with by creating magda which is that she's giving magda a lot of qualities that she has magda's father is in, in back in uh eastern europe is similar to walter to walter and to and to vesta's father vesta's own father um and she is giving magda this cutting uh persona where she's like, mean-spirited in in one of the sections that says like strongest positive personality traits for for Magda um vesta includes manipulative in that which i think like most of us would think of manipulative as maybe like a negative kind of trait so in this list she creates a, a number of characters right uh she invents someone called ghoul which is what people always call her people are always mispronouncing her last name as ghoul when her last name is gull but so she writes ghoul as a possible murderer of magda but she, she writes mis- god. she misspells it she, ra- she writes she writes god g-h-o-d like he's the primary villain. It's interesting that the primary villain of the text is then God.
1: I don't know that we ever get the sense that she's religious. Right. But I can see there being an anger. Like we going back to what we were saying before about everyone striving for meaning and purpose in this world. Yeah. And people finding that in religion. And we don't know if she tried that or not. But I can also see to a certain extent, whether you're religious or not, being mad at whoever for a living 72 years and being like, I got nothing out of this. Without having the awareness to be like, well, it's about what you put into it. Who knows if she could have walked out on Walter, but she didn't.
0: Well, for all the reasons that people don't walk out of terrible relationships.
1: But I think that, I think there is something to like maybe her just being mad at God, even if she's not religious, because like she's angry at herself for not living a more fulfilling life. Right.
0: So then God becomes the murderer because of a spelling error or a possible murder. We don't, it's something that's not
1: really resolved.
0: But I was thinking about this thing that Alan because there Moore, also
1: might not have been a murder.
0: Well, there is, but we'll 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 get we'll get to that okay. whether it be murder or 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 not. Um, I was thinking about this thing that Alan Moore, the comic book writer and magician, um, what says? You know, Alan Moore is a magician. Yeah, no. he's, he practices magic, um, which is important here because Alan Moore uh, says that it's no mistake that we uh, quote unquote spell words. Person writing words is a magician. They use symbols to conjure imagery and put it in people's brain right so the words creation is ritual magic you're you're essentially writing runes on a, on a tablet and sure. then showing it to someone and by showing that to someone you can transport an image into their brain or transport a killer into the world
1: okay let
0: me ask you a question joey do you believe in ghosts
1: um i've never seen one like i'm not one of those people but i like i don't when people say that they've seen a ghost i don't think they're crazy my sort of perception of everything of religion and of specters yeah if it's just us here it's weird like that's weirder than ghosts existing like if we just evolved to the point of sentience and that's all there is Mm -hmm. i think that's a weirder reality than if ghosts exist or a sentient being created the universe or whatever i think that like the odds of like happenstance of us just becoming smart enough to like have memories and like be aware of our own mortality and everything like that feels weird as hell so okay
0: so you believe in ghosts sure okay so the, re- the reason i ask is because i do not believe in ghosts and i am
1: do you look down on people who do
0: I don't, but I often think that people think that I'm a dick because I don't believe in ghosts. Because if you don't believe in ghosts and someone tells you that they had an experience with a ghost right. and you still don't believe in ghosts after that, it means that you think that they were they're stupid or they're lying. Yeah. Right? And I don't I don't think that that's true. What I think, and I, I'm going to tie this back to the book in a second, is that— I um, dare you. Regardless of whether ghosts
1: are real, yeah.
0: if a person— believes in a ghost and they're in a bedroom and they hear something move outside and they believe that it's a ghost and they're scared like it's a ghost and they have a physical reaction like it's a ghost, a ghost may as well be real. There's no difference between whether ghosts exist or not, because if you believe in a ghost... You are tricking your brain into thinking that. I mean, I I, I don't mean that. In a, again, like I'm crossing the line into being dickish here because I'm saying that you're tricking your brain into believing that's not what that's not what I'm. Well, I
1: think I think what you're saying is the same way that I like. I think we have we're looking at it the same way, mm-hmm. except we have a different end result. And my way of thinking is that like like living this life is hard enough and insane enough and just difficult enough as it is. And if saying that you believe in ghosts or that this was this x y or z happened from a ghost if that makes you feel better and helps you get through the day and get through good life do it like that's not hurting me unless right. unless you're actively being like if you're relentless in trying to explain why ghosts exist and you're like negatively affecting me but if you're like there was some crazy shit happened last night let me tell you about it. i think it was a ghost it's like okay like that's probably not what happened I, I,
0: I think there was probably a point in my life when if someone was like i saw a ghost i would be like no you didn't
1: like that's foolish
0: <laughs> stop being stupid um We've And that softened. and and that person is a jerk. But like the I person think that saw
1: the ghost. Or are you the old you?
0: No, the old me. Okay. the old me. But also the person that saw the <laughs> ghost probably because most people are jerks. All I mean is that like in the way that Vesta has created this world, this world is real to her. It's very much like ghosts in our world yeah. to me. Like when I if if someone believes in a ghost and they're afraid of the ghost and they're feel sick to their stomach and they're going to throw up because they they're so afraid that a ghost is going to get them or they they can't sleep because of a ghost. I don't think that that's different really than if there really is a ghost in the other room.
1: It's something to the extent of like something you just don't understand or don't want to come to terms with or is beyond your comprehension. Like why people thousands of years ago created gods because they didn't understand science.
0: That's Joey saying there is no God. God is dead. No, well, I
1: said gods plural. The plurality. That's
0: Joey saying if you are not monotheistic, <laughs> if you're polytheistic, you're dumb. <laughs> you have no chance.
1: At least um, I didn't commit a crime.
0: Yeah, I. Well, you know, we'll see. Maybe I did. Yeah, maybe this, maybe that got a little off track with the ghost thing. Maybe I was trying to like weave in a no, point. No, but this, it, this
1: is a ghost story.
0: Go, go on. <laughs>
1: I thought you were going to run with this. No, I think it's a ghost story because she's haunted by Walter and she's haunted by the mystery and she's haunted by she's haunted by everything. She's haunted by herself. Right. So, okay, going back to what we were saying before about the casting. Right. And about, you know, this I don't know how to cast a 72 year old woman. I also don't know how to cast a world of people who she largely manufactured. We know kind of what Blake looks like. I didn't cast Blake. We know kind of what Magda looks like, but we never meet Magda. We kind of know about Shirley, who's Blake's mom. But we meet a woman who is maybe Shirley, is maybe not Shirley, but, like, she doesn't describe that woman. We're just led to believe that she is the Shirley that she described in this, like, how to write a murder mystery. Yeah. And I think it's difficult because we don't know what's real and what's fake. And because so much of this is imaginary or imagined, it might as well be ghosts because she is surrounded by beings or spirits or whatever both with malice and without like magda is pure of heart like magda you said before is kind of like a stand in for herself right like magda's not like an evil like she's like Casper the friendly ghost but like they, i think this is a ghost story i don't think it's i don't think it's out of the realm of reason to describe this as a ghost story
0: okay yeah i think i think all of that is is a point well made
1: and that's also me justifying the previous 5 minutes about talking about ghosts <laughs> but i also do believe that like <laughs> i don't really gonna, think about that cut that out anyway <laughs> No, I mean we could. No, no, no,
0: no. Okay, but now we have to transition to the next thing,
1: which is. Oh, I do want to say that Blake's note reads like the Shaggy defense. What is the Shag? Oh, it wasn't me. <laughs> yeah, she's dead. Wasn't me. <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: Um, well, okay. So, so that uh, you, you mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned in, in when, when you were when you were talking there about uh, how we meet quote unquote Shirley. Shirley is introduced. And Vesta, Vesta recognizes her in the bathroom. She recognizes her as Shirley and she refers to her as Shirley, but then she corrects herself quickly and says, Shirley, 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 you couldn't have lost your keys. It's an airplane joke. Yeah.
1: But I didn't get the sense while reading this that she knew this woman. Right. Like actually, in reality, in her head, she knows her because this is a woman she spent the last 24 hours with.
0: Okay. So in, in, in this, in, in this moment, she recognizes Shirley and later on, um, as we know, Blake is Shirley's son. And later on, the character Shirley in the book refers to her son as
1: Blake, right? Which I think we interpret differently. Yeah, How do you I think Vesta it? is just hearing what she wants to hear.
0: I am not sure. I don't. I don't. I'm I, not sure either. I, I, I don't. I don't know that it matters. Uh, what What is going on there? But I think that another possibility is that uh, Vesta knows all these people generically and and is has retrofitted their names into her interpretations so i think
1: there's two different ways to look at this i think maybe there's more but there's two like either she knows these people or doesn't and like they're either shirley and blake or they're not yeah but either way whether they're shirley and blake or they're not she's ascribing the same meaning to them which probably is largely independent of their actual characteristics because as she's described she doesn't know these people in this town like she just maybe right. seen shirley at the grocery store
0: yeah and she does this also with um the ghoul character which takes the uh form of a police officer. yeah the personification of a, of a cop um the book has a real bad attitude about police um
1: which, yeah! Respect.
0: <laughs> um So, like, like ghoul, ghoul, or, or sorry, uh, god, god, god pulls her over and sort of gives her a hard time. Like when she first moves in, they're kind of mean to her, and she she doesn't trust them from from out out of the gate. But then later on, when she is happens upon a sort of murder mystery party thing, the the people at the the party refer to the police officer as God again
1: right. but it also might just be like that might like Autessa Masdravek is Persian American right and like the names that she's using might be common Persian name I don't know and so like that
0: is easily look upable I, I did I didn't look it up either but
1: I looked up Levant The town of Levant. Do you know Levant? No. So Levant is an approximate historical geographical term referring to a large area in the eastern Mediterranean region of Western Asia. In its narrow sense, it's equivalent to the historical region of Syria, which included present-day Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, Palestine, and most of Turkey. I don't know what the connection is there, but like she's using that town name. It's not just a town. It's not just a name she picked.
0: Yeah, Monolith is similar to Monolith. I don't like this is like it's very Dickensian, this idea of like ascribing meaning to the name of the town because it could just it could just be a town.
1: It could be. Right. I'm of the mind that there's a, there's a reason for the name of things. Sure. Maybe the reason for the, why she used God is like maybe it was like her neighbor growing up, her family friend or whatever. It's like, oh, that also looks like God. But also I'm like, I don't know. It, I'm also veering off topic here. Yeah. I do think that the the God character says a very funny thing. And I don't think it's meant to be funny, but maybe it is. And again, this, I think, is why she's, like, not able to really be a reliable narrator. You were going well above 60, and the posted speed limit is 45. That's over 15 miles per hour too fast, Mrs. ghoul Mispronouncing it there. That's 33.3% too fast. Why would you say that? Why would, you, <laughs> why would anybody refer to it in decimals? Uh, I think it's very funny. Yeah, because it's a weirdo. I don't know. But, like, he lets her go, because she's like, oh, I'm just, I'm, I am yeah. need to go. Well,
0: because cause that's what needs to happen in the narrative. Right In like, her
1: narrative or in Moshifek's narrative? I don't, I don't think there's a difference. Okay.
0: But, but I, I don't think there's a difference between them. Like, that's what she needs to be let go because she needs to continue.
1: Because at any point in this in this narrative, she could die or get found out or whatever or be arrested. Well, so or... she
0: doesn't do anything wrong,
1: is she? No.
0: I mean, dumping the urn in the water, maybe, but...
1: but... I don't think that's legal. I don't think that's illegal. No, that's definitely illegal. You're not allowed to do that. Really? Yeah. I thought people do that a lot.
0: They do. You're not. You're not allowed. Really? To yeah. <laughs> you're not allowed. I mean, there might be certain places that you're allowed to, but you're not. You're not allowed to dump ashes in the water.
1: Okay. Well, that's a crime that my family committed. Then. not me too. Is that the crime for this episode? No. Okay.
0: No. We'll get to the crime. Don't be quit. being impatient about the crime.
1: I'm. If I guess the crime, you said you're going to give me ten thousand dollars. I'm not acknowledging that. So I guess the the other big chunk. Well, she goes back to the woods she writes a poem so she goes back to the library and she finds there's this like this smelly old woman there the woman she describes as a smelly old woman who's reading a poem a book of poems by blake by edward blake william blake william blake i think
0: edward blake directed the Pl- pink panther no blake edwards directed the pink panther go ahead sorry <laughs>
1: She's like, this has to be a sign. But again, this is, I think, the the kind of thing where it's like, if you're looking for connections, you'll find connections all over the place. That doesn't mean they mean anything. It's just a coincidence. But this woman is, yeah, like, zooming exactly. through Blake, and then, like, the, the book is cracked to a place where, like, there's this poem about, like, trampling over the bones of the dead or something. And I'm like, oh. Also, the, the titular line, Death in Her Hands, is in here twice. Two different ways. Yeah. Which I think is cool. She's like, this has got to be it. And so she, like, has this poem that she thinks is from Blake. And this is where, like, the cue thing starts going, where it's like, this has to be a clue. And, like, it was meant here. It's just like, no, it's just, like, it's a coincidence or whatever. But she goes back to the woods and leaves a poem for Blake. And she's like, I'm onto you. Like, what's the next clue or whatever, right? And she goes back and she starts cooking chicken. She's like, I got to see. And she runs back out there. And the note is gone. And there's just stones in the the letter of a B. But I'm just, I'm thinking, like, she just went to a different part of the woods. Because, like, it's been very clear she does not explore these woods very often. Right. The fact that there's, like, a 45-minute window where she goes and leaves the note and then somebody has checked the note and, like, leaves a stone. It's just like, I don't know what's going on here. Other than probably she's misinterpreting things.
0: Yeah. Or she did that herself in, 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 in a way, which is something that we'll get to Like at, the, at, at, kind the, of? at the very end. We'll talk about, sure. about that because that's sort of how things, how things end here. Murder mystery party for a woman with cancer. Prior to this, there's uh, Charlie gets out. He, he runs Charlie
1: away. gets out Charlie escapes She thinks that he was just Let out by someone She sets up this like Homolonian trap Of like tying a string To a teacup To her door right.
0: The old teacup to the string
1: And that if people Glue it together She'll see She'll, she'll see the cracks of the chips or whatever And then later She finds out that nobody was there because she breaks the teacup herself charlie's gone there's you know she's been planting this garden the garden goes away her car is dead because she probably left it on or left the keys in the nation or whatever and she's like well no it's just not i can't just get a jump started like it's dead dead she's like well so she starts like walking she's looking for charlie she goes out walking and she goes to her neighbor's house and like just like goes and sits down on lakeside because she's an old lady and tired they're having a, a murder mystery for this woman who like is refusing chemo and is going to die shortly of cancer
0: yes the guy's really funny uh he's another example i think the men in the book are really all evil um with the exception with the exception of possibly blake who we only meet very briefly um but he's on a bike going to his friend's house yeah walter's evil um god is evil charlie turns evil charlie turns evil
1: henry's not evil no but henry is the physical embodiment of evil
0: and, uh, if to, to her interpretation, sure, yeah. he, he he represents. Uh, Joey's not saying that disfigured people are evil. No,
1: no, no. But like she sees him as this like malevolent, nefarious yeah. force. Even though he's
0: town. like very sweet and offers to oh, uh, give
1: her a ride home and like pay me later for things. Yeah, just like yeah. could not be a more kind and giving small town convenience store owner or whatever.
0: Right. She uh, feels faint and uh, she's having an allergic reaction, maybe to
1: the pine. Is that real? Do you think that's real? Hard. Or it just it just whatever. Yeah, it's, it's it's hard to say.
0: She's she's freaking out, and so uh, she passes out, and they they let her come in, and and these people are dressed in like sort of uh, Victorian dress. They have their faces whited out, uh, and the woman we learn is dying from cancer, but instead of dying, instead of. Uh, mourning her death she's sort of celebrating it with a murder mystery party i
1: didn't think about this while reading but just thinking about it in the conversation which is why again selfishly i wanted to have this podcast so i could like process these things it almost couldn't be more opposite to vesta's way of reacting to the world like this woman is embracing the hand that life has dealt her and vesta's like she's not she's doing everything in her power to like buck that trend kind of
0: which is also like there's something uh, uh this woman gives vesta a, a book
1: Called Death. Because then there's like a, she's holding death in her hands. Yeah, she's holding
0: death in her hands. She puts death underneath a a loaf of bread at the store. She didn't want
1: death anymore. Yep.
0: And the advice that this book called Death gives (laughs) is such bad advice. Oh, yeah. It's like if you are overcome by grief, if the world is too much for you and you've suffered greatly, whether it be through death or disease or anything, do not talk to anybody about it. For God's <laughs> sake, keep it inside and cry in private. When you're in public, it's nobody else's business, the grief that you have. Always be presenting yourself as a happy person who has a good life. Save all of your grief. Push all of your grief inward so that you can only ever process it and Total
1: solitude. Nobody knows your sorrows. It is best to keep it that way, as expressing sadness often invites pity. Sensitive women, or young people, often find pity consoling, and so they pervert their tearfulness into superficial melancholy in order to be further comforted. Some may become dependent on this superficial comfort and will entangle themselves in darkness so that those around them will constantly try to brighten their spirits, quote unquote, brighten their spirits. Some call this quote the depression. <laughs> Make it a regular habit to deny sadness when someone asks you how you are coping. When you publicize your lament, the dead feel you've cheapened their absence as though you've taken advantage of their deaths to reap the attention you secretly wished for yourself while they were dying. When you mourn openly, the dead feel as though they've been murdered. If you must, weep, do it in the bathroom, bed alone at night. Do not dedicate your sadness to anything but the dead. It is easy to confuse things, which is another reason to be discreet. I love when books have bo- like other books within them. I think it's like Moshfag being like, I get to write a weird thing. Like, that's not in the tone of the thing. Yeah. And this also kind of feels like a Miss Manners from the 50s. Like, this is how women are supposed to act.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which we'll get to more in in a little bit, actually.
1: You know, later this season, we'll be talking about a Curtis White book, but I read Requiem. Mm -hmm. And that's like six or seven or eight or nine different, like radically different writing styles. And it feels both immensely challenging and also like kind of, I think, as not a writer myself, really, like secretly rewarding like well i don't really feel like writing this kind of thing anymore like i want to write something that's like research based or whatever like house of leaves the same thing right yeah. it's just like i have four or five different things that i can like write now it allows you to be creative i mean it's i think it's really tough to do to make them all sound good because like that means you have to be good at five different kinds of writing or whatever
0: there's also something really funny about this and it reflects, again, uh, My Year of Rest and Relaxation, it sort of reflects the protagonist of that book's um, therapist, who's just incredibly bad at her job. Mm-hmm. She's trying to help, uh, but like she, everything that she does is actually geared toward destruction. So if, if that character, um, who does follow her therapist's advice, or this character, uh, Vesta, if she followed the advice in this book, um, which she more or less actually does... You know, it, it leads toward a, a sort of destruction, right? Mm-hmm. And it's funny. Bad, bad advice is funny. It's funny to give bad advice. Next time someone asks you for something, <laughs> like, try to give them the worst advice you possibly can and see if they follow it. Because, like, the reality is that they weren't going to follow your good advice anyway. So just try to give them bad advice instead.
1: But what if they follow that? That's funny. That's on them. They,
0: yeah, that's what's funny. Okay. Yeah. She leaves this couple uh, prior to their um, murder mystery party, and she walks to the store. Mm-hmm. That's where she deals with Henry. We've already talked about Henry. And then ultimately she walks back home, correct? Yep. And what, so when she gets home, what's what's happening there? Charlie's back. Okay.
1: And Charlie is maybe rabid. Yes. Or he's... just doesn't recognize Vesta because maybe she is herself in a sense rabid or just smells and is disheveled and doesn't resemble the woman that has been with charlie and charlie was also probably gone a day without food or whatever like i think a lot of this to a certain extent is open to interpretation like which is just like what books do but i think this one this part in particular just like i don't know what happened here she kills charlie in self-defense probably
0: well okay so let's let's actually um rewind a little bit yeah also waiting on her doorstep is a package oh, yeah, she, she ordered, like, a,
1: a, an... An all-black, like, Lycra bodysuit, essentially. So
0: that she could go, like, spy on people in the woods.
1: That she saw in a pop-up ad from Ask Jeeves.
0: Which is great. I love it. It immediately made me go and ask Jeeves and, and, and like, buy a all-like Lycra bodysuit, <laughs> um, which I'm wearing right now. She leaves some food out for for Charlie and leaves the door open and and thinks, like, he'll eat this chicken. Oh, also she's been eating raw chicken. Not raw chicken, but, like, cooked cold chicken, like, and drinking wine out of a bottle. And unseasoned
1: chicken. She's like, we don't need salt and pepper. Yeah, she's, she's
0: like, smearing fat all over her face and looking basically um, crazier and crazier.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, And she goes up to her... her But
1: also, like, the interesting thing, complimentary thing to that, is that because we're in her head... It doesn't seem as crazy right. as if we. this was told from her neighbor's perspective. Yeah, if you saw
0: if you saw her on the street, you would probably, depending on the type of person... You would you, react
1: to her the way that she reacts to other people in the town.
0: Yes. Well, depending on the type of person you are, you might try to give her money or you might try to cross the street to get away from her. Mm-hmm. She uh, leaves the food out for her dog, Charlie, who is, again, maybe rabid.
1: And she goes... And up, again, maybe Vincent from Lost.
0: She goes up to her room and lays down in bed. She's drunk, high on paranoia, in a weird way, and she turns on the radio. On the radio is this sort of guy that's been a kind of Greek chorus for the whole novel called Pastor Jimmy. And we know that Pastor Jimmy is off the air now and that they're playing really old reruns.
1: Do we know that or that's just what she's told?
0: She's told that in the town. So someone in the town told her that. I wouldn't think of that as something that's necessarily a misinterpretation by her. She's listening to Pastor Jimmy talk and Pastor Jimmy is giving a sermon it's a call-in show, but he's giving a sermon essentially on lust. A girl calls. He asks the girl to identify herself, and the girl says her name is Magda, and she gives her last name too, which is a, like an Eastern European last name. He asks what she wants, and she says, "Is it all right to harm someone who has harmed you? Like, what should you? What should you do?" Right. Jimmy essentially says that it's her job to forgive
1: consider it a joy and privilege that you are in a way able to suffer for the name of jesus by being abused yeah which is fucked up
0: right uh he he gives like a fairly long sermon about about the nature of forgiveness and how you have to forgive it's your duty to forgive Mm -hmm. because god has forgiven you right is that is that more or less
1: it seems and i don't know if it is or not but it seems like sexist and standoffish i mean it's it's absolutely those things stereotypical bible belt what you imagine a huckster minister to be to be spewing?
0: yeah magda is clearly reacting to this in a, in a very very negative way she she is not taking this advice lately she's saying well let me let me find it
1: actually so do you think while you look this up do you think there's a? I think there's a possibility i don't know how likely it is that this is a story a radio call an episode vesta has heard before and has constructed the narrative and it's just a coincidence because that feels like too much of a coincidence it also feels like If this is like a syndicated radio minister or whatever, they probably have like hundreds, if not thousands of episodes. So the one to be repeated, like it just feels like it could be a coincidence. Like maybe she's internalized this already, but maybe not. I don't know. You know,
0: I think that Magda is Vesta and she's essentially whether or not this is really her or not. I don't think matters, but she's essentially Magda is recounting
1: Vesta's story. The way that Vesta so Vesta is ha- hearing her own story v- told on the radio. The way that
0: Vesta has been telling Magda's story for this whole time, yeah. we are essentially hearing Magda tell Vesta's okay. story with Walter in this section. She says, "Yes, please. What to do when a thing is not so good and you are angry, but not that nothing is wrong? What to do when yes, if there is something wrong and for good reason you have anger? Uh, he he asks her name, and she says, Magda uh, Magdalena Tenaskovich." And he says, Magdalena, you're called. Magdalena, of course, is the, the uh, Mary prostitute. Mary Magdalene. Yeah. Ma- Mary Magdalene, the prostitute in the Bible. And he says, Magdalene, tell, tell me if you I've got you right. What you'd like to know is what to do when your anger is warranted, when there's a good reason, as you called it. And she said, yes, because I think sometime it is right. All she's asking is for him to validate her anger. Yeah. He says, well, I told the last caller, righteous anger is a sin. Right. He's telling uh, her what I think people have told women for, for all of time, that like— to be a woman and to be angry is to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And and so she says, yes, I know this. But if someone is hurting you, and he says, first of all, I want you to know that the Bible says God will never allow us to go through more than we can handle, which is the horse shittiest horse shit that I've heard. <laughs> he knows us better than we know ourselves. You can make it through, miss. Philip. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You are going to be fine. Now God told Abraham, you are going to need to leave your relatives to go to the place that I call you to. Not everyone has love in his heart, but you have to live by the word of God no matter what. And James 1 says, count it all joy when you encounter these trials. It talks about being happy when people hurt you, when people are against you. Consider it a joy and privilege that you are, in a way, able to suffer for the name of Jesus being abused. Now, I'd say the number one reason women think their anger is justified is when there's been betrayal by their husbands. And I'll say to you what I say to them. I say this over and over again. I cannot seem to say it enough. You need to remember that God has forgiven you for what you've done in the past. The assumption here saying God has forgiven you for what you've done in the past. He's talking essentially about Eve eating the apple, right? Like wh- the the, sure. the original sin of woman, right? That, that women led men to the path of original sin. And he's saying women are sinful and God is forgiving you. So look, you have to tolerate what your, husbands did, what your husband did to you.
1: So because remember, he's only sinning because you sinned first. Yes.
0: So you've betrayed God many times, haven't you? And she says, I don't know, maybe. And he says, number two, people will disappoint you. You have to accept that fact. People will let you down. Sometimes we put people on such a high pedestal that they can't measure up to our expectations, and then we get disappointed. And when they stumble, we get angry. David said in the book of Psalms, if it would have been an enemy that betrayed me, then it would not have bothered me or hurt me, but it was you, my friend. Right? And then he says, forgiveness is a decision. I don't want to read this whole thing.
1: Can you, it, you imagine if you're a woman who, like, call like this is how he just speaks to people, and you're like, I'm still going to call him and ask for his advice.
0: Well, I think, I mean, I, I, I think that a lot of, I think there are a lot of people like this in a lot of women's lives, right, that are just like like a woman will ask someone for advice and they'll just be like
1: acquiesce.
0: Yeah. They'll, 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 they'll just say, they'll just like repeat sort of gender essentialist checklist of of what, of what you need to do as a woman to make things right. But it's, it's hard to read this without thinking that this guy is saying specifically, well, I know that you know that Walter was sleeping with his students. I know that you know that Walter was cruel to you in all of these various ways, but also remember that you're a woman and that, he deserves you to treat him. He deserves your forgiveness the same way that God forgave you. So Vesta hears this and interprets it as Magda telling her story, the way that she's been telling Magda's story.
1: That's when Charlie, I think, I don't know if Charlie attacks her then or not, but she takes a knife that is just materialized in her home. Yeah. She Which just, she thinks
0: is Magda's
1: switchblade. Right. And Charlie who has eaten the, the chicken but is like pacing and growling and maybe, you know, rabbit or something, who knows, and not nearing her, lunges at her. It seems like she's going to die, but somehow she has the knife in her hand and like slashes him in the heart and she's like, I it was self defense. I knew that I knew where to go for his heart. And like he likely, we don't know for sure, but like bleeds out and dies. Yeah. And then she goes outside and meets God. She goes,
0: she <laughs> Yes. <laughs> uh she goes out into the woods in her in her
1: outfit. The all black outfit, yes, and her all from black G. F's. And it seems which also, by the way, it seems like she lives in the middle of nowhere. She ordered this thing yesterday, and it's already there today. I'm like that's great customer service. <laughs> yes.
0: So we have Walter essentially at the, at the end here, and um, in, in the last page or so, talking about
1: this is where we find out the age the age difference.
0: Yes, large. like he's he's admitting to his greatest crime,
1: but also says you were very willing, Vesta. I didn't pressure you at all.
0: Right, which is like the the, um, the mantra of powerful men who are taking advantage of young women, yeah. right? Like, well, she's, she, she wanted it. She was into it.
1: Look how she was dressed.
0: This is also re- reflecting, again, Magda's conversation with Pastor Jimmy here. Like, he's he's saying these things. He also says that she's imagining things, which is what he's been telling her her whole life. So she sort of gains the, gains the power to say to him, to say to Walter, the only thing that I'm ashamed of is that I ever let you touch me. And now,
1: that, now, she's not remembering this as a conversation. She's having this conversation with her dead husband. Yes. Like, this, these are things that she probably wished she could have said but never actually said.
0: Yes. I mean, he exists as a ghost in the, in the, in the story.
1: Here. Once again, ghost story. Yeah. The other thing that we find out that is that she's written, like, all, like, her, her workshop, her workbook of all these murders and all these suspects. Or not all these murders, but all the suspects. Charlie has ruined. Or she blames Charlie for having ruined.
0: Yes, that's right. Charlie scratches them all up.
1: But there's the one note left, which I believe is the note of the, um, my my name is Vestigul, I was killed by, Vestigul, I was killed by God.
0: Before then, we have, I think, gives away the entire, the entire story here. Go for it. On page 253, she says, if I held the paper up to the window, darkness illuminating it somehow, I could read the words. Her name was Magda, it said, she died and there's nothing you can do about it. I didn't, and there it stopped. A false start, it was. The only evidence left intact. But how I had gotten there, I couldn't think. Um, so that's a false. She started writing a note that said her name is Magda. She died and there's nothing you do about it. To me, that indicates that she wrote the initial note and left the
1: initial note in the woods and just forgot. Yeah. Or, or and, and as, wanted excitement in her life.
0: Yeah. And retrofit the entire the entire thing to it, because then she ends the story by writing a new note that says her name was Vesta. A clutch a note that I have written. Her name was Vesta. That is what I meant to write all along, right? Which means that when she wrote her name was Magda, what she should have written was her name was Vesta. Because this story that she's been constructing is actually about her the right. entire time. So she should have, from out of the gate, just said, my name is
1: Vesta. So who do you think, did she know a Magda?
0: I think Magda's a stand-in for her, right? They're both Eastern European. They're both, sure. uh, they both have the same fathers. They both are in these different relationships that are sort of weirdly
1: yeah.
0: uh very harrowing yeah i think the last two pages over explain what i just said it's the only part of the book that i don't like and i would take those two pages out the part where it says i should have written that all along her name is vesta because i think what i just said is the answer and i don't i don't and i don't i i kind of don't want there to be an answer
1: the story the narrative ends with her going out into the woods and dying
0: I think so, yeah. Likely dying. She's the body.
1: When I feel myself slowing, I lie down in a soft bed of sodden leaves and watch the dance of the pines away. Pines sway. Which she's allergic to. My spirit lifts, which is r- peaceful here. So, so
0: remember that the pines almost killed her earlier, too. Yeah. So
1: moving through the mind space, now I am perf- now I am part of the darkness. I blend in perfectly.
0: Yeah, so she dies.
1: After God takes the note from her, crumples it like it's nothing. Like I receive for a soda from a Highway Rest Stop. Don't be silly, Besta, my little dove. Mm. Sad.
0: The end. See you next week. Gone. Death Jeez. Death seven, in nine. her hands.
1: We ain't, we ain't done. We yeah, can talk about our casting, or do we have more to talk about the well, narrative?
0: No, I think I mean, do you have any any closing thoughts? What did you think of the book overall?
1: I really like the book. I think so. Again, going back to Brett Easton Ellis for a second, Imperial Bedrooms, his final book. Mm. We talked about how it's the one we talked about like off mic, not on this. You didn't miss an episode. We talked about how it's like it's it's not a satire. It's just a straight up narrative of like horrific shit that goes on in Hollywood. Yeah, it's a me
0: too. It's a it's a me too narrative that predates the movement.
1: Yes. What I was frustrated by is that I think he is such a funny author when he wants to be. Yeah. <clears throat> Not saying that this narrative required humor, but you could inject it in in a way that's like, it just feels like relentlessly bleak to a point where like, I don't, what do you Are you just illuminating this happens? Like, I think we all kind of knew that it happened. But I don't know. Whatever. You know what I mean? My takeaway here is that I really like this book. And like I said earlier, I think that you could read this book and think it's very funny if you like, if you miss all sorts of things. My year of rest and relaxation was also very bleak because it's about a woman who is afraid to confront the outside world for any number of reasons. But I remember that being a lot funnier and a lot, not sillier. I'm not saying this book should have been but I think there's a way to like, I think this is a more difficult read
0: well, my year of rest and relaxation, I think, is more accessible because, number one, it's about youth and not old, old age. But also because it's satirizing things that we want to see taken down, right? Like, it's satirizing contemporary art movements. It's satirizing wealth and, and like, uh, like extreme privilege in and New beauty. York City, yeah. beauty. And it's satirizing um, the therapy industry. Um, it's, it's doing a lot of work on things that, like, culturally are easy targets, right? And this is
1: just kind of surfacing areas of society that we have chosen to turn a blind eye to to the elderly to mental illness to right it's like surfacing yeah and it's difficult
0: i do think it's a fun i still think it's a funny book though
1: i, I felt wrong laughing a lot of the time because like mm-hmm. she is a very funny but like she's not meaning to be funny it's just that her perception of the world is so
0: she's askew. not meaning to be funny but like uh, like Moshfag's humor i think is fairly biting and dark and i think her commentary like It's entertaining to watch her take down the people around town to to like put them down and and feel better than them. And the stuff with the cop is funny. The stuff with the couple at the murder before the murder mystery party is really funny, I think. Yeah. Like the husband, the way that he's treating her is like mean, but there's like something very biting about it that is, I think, humorous.
1: Oh, your name reminds me of Velveeta Cheese or like the Vestibule or like the vesti- or Yeah, something. and
0: also like them dressing, them being dressed in these yeah. Victorian costumes is funny. Like, there, I think there's a lot of funny stuff in here.
1: I really liked it. I, I was really looking forward to this book of the ten and this I mean, I'm looking forward to all of these to a certain extent because, again, you have not had me read a book that I did not like. Oh boy, a lot of pressure. Well, I mean, yeah, but...
0: Let's see if we can get one in here that you really hate.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was looking forward to this one, especially, I think, as, as I said, because I like the other book so much and... I really liked it. Yeah. So who did you see as Vesta? You're making the movie Death in Her Hands. I'll,
0: I'll start by saying that I didn't. I, I, I thought less about casting than I thought about who would make the movie. Oh. And the answer is, I, there are two answers to that. One of them is impossible because he can't really make movies anymore because for, he's been exiled, rightfully so. Which Roman Polanski. Roman Polanski is the, and he would like, because he has that sort of, he is the premier artist of paranoia this there's shades of rosemary's baby shades of the tenant shades of frantic all of that stuff like you can feel it inside this book and you can feel that in in her last book too um which is confined to an apartment in the same way that repulsion rosemary's baby the tenant they're all like have these similar reference points of like being in an enclosed space and then and and this is like distrust of the villagers which is a really like polanski-esque thing um, and then my second uh, person that I think would be fantastic for it is David Lynch. Oh. Um, I think, like, if David Lynch made this into into a movie, it would be really great. But also, it's a, it's a novel of incredible interiority. I don't know exactly, like, all of this is happening. It, it's all internal monologue. Um, so, like, a lot of the book is her driving around or her imagining backstories for people. And I don't know if you do that by fading into and you have magda actually as a character that you that you see going around doing stuff or if magda exists entirely you never see magda i'm not really sure but i think that that's the that lynch would be good at all of that stuff and i think he'd be really good at uh you know the stuff with the dog would be which is, is like right in his wheelhouse
1: the whole internal thing that's something we've talked about with a lot of a handful of books like story of my life and stuff where it's like how do you Depict this thing. It's like, I think you could do other ways, but the same thing, you know, one of our favorite movies, I think, from last year, one of my favorite movies from last year, my favorite movie from last year, I think so, was based on another book that's all like entirely Mm -hmm. internal, which is I'm thinking of ending things. And the way that Charlie Kaufman like adapted that took a book that I loved and made a better movie out of it. And like, you can do it. I don't know how you do it. I think having Magda be an embodiment and just like her talking, like maybe Magda never speaks, but just like having someone to talk to, because you could talk to Charlie for a certain extent. I don't know. I think those are good choices. I was also thinking. I didn't think about directors until just now, but there's the rumor that Yorgos Lanthimos is doing Year of Rest and Relaxation. Right. I think he might, he could do this possibly because it seems like his aesthetic and Mashveg's aesthetic kind of overlap a little bit.
0: Yeah, I, I never saw the favorite. I mean, that's, I think that's the only one of his that I haven't seen.
1: It's good. And then the other person I was thinking, and I don't know that he would have interest in it, but like just like a sort of a David Fincher, sort of nihilistic, kind of austere. I don't, I don't, he would Like I'm thinking like Dragon Tattoo. Yeah,
0: but I, he doesn't do like that kind of. I guess Fight Club is kind of psychological but it doesn't yeah I don't I I, I don't
1: know like that's not a great yeah, I didn't Fincher, think about this till now so. yeah no,
0: I don't think Fincher matches Um, but I could see Yorgos Lanthimos doing it but I really it, I think Polanski or, or or Lynch but those guys don't well do they adapt books Polanski's adapted some books anyway right. so what, what were you thinking casting wise
1: so when I first thought of a 72 year old woman I was like oh June Squibb my girl June Squibb and she, then she's got to be older than the 72 right I think she's in her 70s okay and also, like, every woman over 50 is like, you can play a grandma now. Like, that's just how Hollywood yeah. treats them, right? Yeah. Also, I, I was surprised. Like, you can search like women in their 70s and like IMDb can bring it up for you. And I'm, I'm like, these women in their 70s. Like, it's just like. Yeah, it's like
0: Meryl Streep,
1: right? Yeah. It's yeah. like, oh no, like, I yeah, thought like, yeah. if you're like, she's 60, like, yeah, she's 55, like, yeah, okay. And then, like I said before, like, it's like, you know, she's basically ethnically ambiguous or whatever. And just like, oh, it can't be June Squibb. Because like, June Squibb is the type of woman that, like, and no offense to June, I, I love June Squib, but like, the way that Vesta views the world like June Squibb is like the woman who lives in this town that she's like just vaguely white and just anglo and just
0: let me pitch to to to, to you here. Well I have I have my casting. Oh, okay, let's let's hear it. Share. That'd be great. Right? Share would be fantastic
1: because I think she's like she's at the right age. Yeah. She is form like not formally beautiful but like she's, she's still beautiful. She's still beautiful but like Vesta's like you know beautiful whatever. Yeah. I think she's like world weary and she also is like, you know, ethnically appropriate
0: yeah the ethnically appropriate stuff is hard to pin down because it is so vague in the book other other than being Eastern European
1: right yeah
0: my real answer is my mom's friend Loretta <laughs> <laughs> um who who is uh is she an actress no oh. um but she's of of this age and she's like exactly the type of person that like she's great I love Loretta but uh uh Susan Sarandon sure um Faye Dunaway is probably a little old probably around 80 but she's Maybe not. I don't know.
1: But, like, I don't know that, like, 72 specifically is so important. Exactly, yeah. It's just woman past her prime. Like, not even just, like, past her prime in the Hollywood sense, but, like, past her prime, like, society is just, like, we don't need to worry about her.
0: I think she has to be a woman who realistically could have dementia without you being, like, she's way too young to have dementia.
1: Like, not, like, still Alice Julian Moore. Yeah,
0: or even Susan Sarandon. It's hard. It's hard to cast someone like this because you don't want to be, like, this person's really old. Right. Uh, uh, and I think Susan Sarandon is like share still beautiful and still like a, yeah. a functional human being who i think could play this role because she's an incredibly gifted actress
1: and there's also the robert redford all is lost or tom hanks and cast where it's like you need someone who can command like like you we were saying be alone on screen for like 80 of this movie yeah which has that has there been a, a woman in a movie like that i don't know that there has it's all dudes
0: uh, oh central and gravity there you go yeah
1: for Walter uh, Harrison Ford, because he's described as a Harrison Ford type, I'm like, yeah, he could work. Yeah, he'd um, also just be an asshole. Sure.
0: Uh, the 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 one that was in my head, I can't remember his name, but as the husband for the murder mystery party, I was thinking of Tom from Succession.
1: Oh yeah, I thought he'd be great. The only other person in my cast, and I think this is again because of I'm also reading White, rereading White Noise right now, and so for Magda, I was just picturing Raffi Cassidy. I don't, I don't know. She's, the, she's the girl who's... Ca- she was cast in White Noise as the daughter, as one of the daughters, I think. She okay. is also the daughter in Vox Lux. She's also the daughter in Killing of a Sacred Deer.
0: Is she someone famous as his daughter I don't in think, real life?
1: I don't know. I'm pretty sure she is. I don't have a problem with nepotism. <laughs> That's how you got this podcast network. That's not even a little bit true. Parents, Simon Cassidy.
0: But it's the Cage Club network, right? And you could argue Cage is a nepotistic case. Oh, of course. I mean, of course he's talented, but like he... Is from the vast and powerful Coppola family.
1: Raffi Cassidy from The Other Lamb, Vox Lux, Killing of a Sacred Deer, Allied, Miranda's Letter, Rust, Tomorrowland. Yeah, I don't know her. I don't think she has famous parents. Okay. But she's cast as Greta Gerwig and Adam Driver's daughter, or one of the daughters, one of the kids in White Noise. Right on. We have a couple emails. You want to read the emails?
0: Yeah, let's do emails.
1: So we have an email address, lottery at cageclub.me if you want to join the book club. First email from my friend Jess, Jess Collins. Subject line, death in her hands. On brand. Perfect. My thoughts.
0: You know what you're getting when Jess emails in.
1: Full disclosure, I listened to this on an audiobook and crushed it in about four hours. I found this book to be quite hilarious. I imagine this is what my own brain will be like when I'm an old lady, although it's pretty much like that now.
0: Joey is judging you for finding it hilarious.
1: No, I'm not. I, I did too. I just was sad that I found that hilarious. I also found this book to be incredibly sad. Bingo. Thank you, Montez. Also, her name... Okay, so here's here's the explainer. So she is a friend of mine that I met at a wedding, and she would write into Zach Attack. This is such a complicated explanation that nobody's going to give a shit about. <laughs> <laughs> but in...
0: <laughs> Prefacing stories with nobody's going to give a shit about this. Let me say it anyway. Her
1: name is Jessica Collins. Her maiden name is Knight. But Her we...
0: social security... But well, we is... call her
1: Montez because in and I don't remember exactly why, but in high school musical, Vanessa Hudgens character's name is Gabriela Montez and she's like very nasty to Zach Efron's character and we're like oh Montez and like I think she sent us like a sarcastic email we're like oh you're like Jess Montez and so we just call her Montez now so she goes by Montez even on other podcasts so I don't
0: associate with uh with Joey nor we're I don't know this person is this
1: the last podcast is this is the last episode <laughs> of this podcast? yes first and last today's crime is murder first last and security deposit so Montez writes I also found this book to be incredibly sad as she's processing through the grief of losing her husband the main character starts to spiral I'm sure there potentially is some underlying mental decline happening as well, given the relationship she has and then doesn't have with her dog, which ripped my heart out, by the way. Yeah. You can see the character processing her grief as she continues to talk about her lead husband. At first, she's kind and sweet, looking back at her memories of him. They soon turn sour as she claims he held her back, and eventually she just dispenses of his ashes altogether without a second thought. When she realizes what she's done, she immediately starts to regret her decision because it's hard to fully let go of something.
0: It comes back around though. I mean, by the by the end of the book, she's like, "Man, fuck that guy." I got no end. Like part of catharsis of this is that at the very like before she dies, she's able to like tell Walter to go fuck himself.
1: Yep, which is nice. Yeah, we can curse, right? We're cursing. I've cursed before a couple times in this episode. We get the little e in there for Apple Podcasts. Hell yeah! Ooh. I know I already said it, Did you say
0: ooh, because I said, uh, like, hell yeah, sexy? Yeah.
1: Hell yeah. No, I, I was saying, because, like, well, y- yes, number one, but also number two, that you, like, can we curse? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I know I already said it, but the ending with the dog really shook me up. I thought to myself, A24 would adapt this, because they're always killing animals. Well, there's the Yorgos Lanthimos connection. What is
0: with that? Why, like, why is ki- why is killing dogs...
1: I don't know. Dogs, to
0: read. dogs specifically.
1: I've read like three books you told me to read this year that had dogs die in it. W-
0: but why is it such like a trope? Why is it something that keeps coming
1: back around? Because people love dogs and killing a dog. It's like a helpless animal.
0: It has more of an emotional weight than killing a human.
1: Yeah. In a story. Mm-hmm.
0: And you can tell that someone is truly... It's usually a depiction of evil. Yeah. If someone kills a dog. But it's not, that's not the case
1: in this. No. it's The dog is evil. Maybe.
0: Yeah. The dog is sort of... He's Perfect. got like a... Gozer vibes. What's Gozer? Gozer the Gozerian from Ghostbusters. Oh yeah, okay. Wait, is that even the case? Oh, I'm gonna. I can't. I can't fuck up. Go. <laughs> I, I, is Gozer the dog or is Gozer the? I'm gonna kill myself.
1: <laughs> the crime is. Dis- Don't try to predict my crimes. <laughs> Disrespect of Ghostbusters.
0: Can, can you? But but like I I'm interested in that like the the use of dog violence towards dogs as like a prestige as a marker of prestige both in film and literature. It's very strange.
1: Well, I think there's it's just emotionally affecting because they are helpless. I think like it's the same. It's equivalent to killing a child. Yeah. Because that's something that like should be protected. That society says like well, you should protect these people or whatever. Overall, the book was really beautiful in a very sad sort of way. Death is one of the things I personally am always thinking about, having experienced a lot of death in my very large family. The process to cope with that grief is different every time. I think this book is trying to convey that it's okay to let go of something as long as you don't lose your mind doing it. So excited for this podcast. I can't wait to read along with you. Much love, Montez. Also, there's the Montez. So. Thanks, Montez.
0: Joey really winked at me when he said that.
1: I was basically winking through the... Like, it's just like the... What's his name? Who did kiss me through your phone? A soldier boy did kiss me through the phone, but I was winking through the podcast. All right. Then we got an email from Meg Stefanski, your friend Meg.
0: It's pronounced Egg.
1: Eggs. Egg. Eggs, death in her hands reaction. Also, right? We know what we're doing to the subject line, just right to the point. I love it. The egg delivers. Overall, I like the book. Unfortunately, I accidentally read a review. So, going to pause there. So, my friend Jordan, who I don't think is listening to this, she might, I don't know, but she would accidentally do things a lot of the time that, like, couldn't be accident. Like, I accidentally read a review of the movie. It's like, you can't accidentally read a review. It's like, you see the review and you either read it or you don't. Like, it's not like...
0: Uh, all right, I'm going to step in to defend the... To defend egg? Yeah, a little bit. You can... You read a review... You can accidentally read a review that spoils the movie. Because reviews should not spoil things.
1: Which we've talked about. Which is why when you used to review things, you explicitly did not you talked about it in a grand sort of
0: you talk about it abstractly you don't talk about what happens in the plot you talk about the themes
1: because egg says i accidentally read a review that was like unreliable narrator crazy ending and that kind of thing spoils things for me because i'm expecting it to happen and the ending is sort of boring so i think i would have liked it better if i went in purely blind
0: yeah well one time i went to see the movie foxcatcher with the egg and she uh, was super pissed off that I didn't tell her what happened beforehand because it's a because she was like oh I would have enjoyed that movie if I knew that it was going to end the way that it did and so like
1: there's there's no pleasing egg is what you're saying that's what I'm saying yeah well thanks egg
0: (laughs) I'm sorry I didn't I didn't mean it
1: the two emails that we got from friends who are good friends of ours uh one devolves into a narrative of why her name is the way her name is not um, which is a very Magna Vesta thing. And then one is just us dunking on your friend. egg. No,
0: we're not dunking. We're not dunking on her. She's, thank you both. Yeah, thank you.
1: So here's the thing. If you want to write in lottery at cageclub.me, we'll read it on the next episode. We're recording some of these in advance, but you also know the full season reading list. So if you want to get in something for a future book, read ahead, write it in ahead. We won't read it until that episode. Like if you write anything about Duck's Newberry port, which you are doing in 14 weeks or whatever get it in now because that's a thousand page book. Yeah.
0: You shouldn't feel compelled to read every single book that we have here. Um, you should feel compelled to read the ones that interest you and skip the ones that you don't. Yeah. Just email the participant.
1: Cause we were talking about this. This is a very ambitious schedule, not as like sort of for us, but I think especially so for a listener. Cause like, this is something that we're choosing to do our time. Like we're, we're choosing to, these are the books that I'm reading, right? Like I'm not reading other things. And this, like, this is what I'm reading.
0: I don't have anything going on in my life. Okay,
1: what what I'm saying is that if I need this. If you're out there, we know that you have things going on. It's a lot to read a book every two weeks, especially a book that's sometimes a thousand eighty-eight pages or whatever Ducks Newberry Port is. We're just happy that you're listening. If you want to read one book this, I keep I want to call them laps because that's what we do for Too Fast Too Forever this season. If you want to read one book, you want to write in about that. Love it. That's awesome. If you want to read every book, that's also awesome. That's not expected. I mean, we will, and you'll fall behind the class if you don't, but you'll make the professor sad. Can I call you the professor? No, don't. We have a Twitter, at LotteryPod. We have other things. We have a Patreon, we have an Audible, which are two things that I feel sort of not greedy about dropping in the first episode, but... Well, the
0: Patreon, we don't have any content, for the so don't worry about it.
1: No, we do. Oh, well, not yet. We uh, will. Yeah.
0: Uh, not sure what it is. Yeah, Hold on, 100%. I do. I'm
1: going to bring it up. It's patreon.com slash LotteryPod. LotteryPod everywhere. There's only one tier, $5 a month. We can change this. You get early access to episodes. So as soon as they're done editing, I'm done editing, it goes up. Oh, okay. Voting power. What, what, what was the voting power Well, we,
0: we, we talked about this idea of allowing people outside of us to assemble one of the next, like, oh, right. like a mini module. Like, you can do, like, pick a book for us to read. We'll, we'll do, like, four. Because, like, okay, so this is a book club, but it's also, like, a fascist book club because I choose everything.
1: And I'm okay with it. Yeah,
0: because just like I have my, um, you know, my my toes in the in the water of this stuff, my little dainty pretty toes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so like I have a pretty good, you know, I, and and I know like how to, uh, you know, I'm thematically grouping things based on like my my fairly vast library. Brag, sure, but if you want to. We'd be willing to take suggestions, or you can suggest. You can vote on on like what the next module will be. Like for example, for the next thing we have like uh, uh, there's a possibility of. Do um, are we
1: gonna tease this now? We could. I'm not against it. This is just a bold undertaking. Well, I,
0: I mean, just examples. It doesn't have to be these. Well, we ex- have like
1: you know, like for instance, like there's one on crime. There's one on sci-fi. There's one on uh, the machinery of America.
0: Yeah. Oh, so that would be the, those are like sort of. Some of those books are sort of conspiracy ish yeah. books. Some of them are about American history. There's one on sports and philosophy. Because
1: these are originally all going to just be things that I just read on my own. There's
0: there's one on um uh like war, like inhumanity, and things like that. Being a millennial, the, yeah, yeah, like millennial. Like we can you can group them by cosmic horror. You can group them by smaller sections, like you know, uh, by demographic, like it, it, people who were born between this year, authors who were born between these years, things like that.
1: So we could do voting in two different ways. We can say, hey, here's three different modules without you getting to pick the books. Here's one of the – pick which one you want us to do next because they're all – there are books in each of these and aren't they going to be the ones that we actually cover or not? You know, Bob has laid out a bunch of these different things. That's number one. Or, you know, if we do like another season of ten books, we can be like, here's nine and you can pick of the last – here's five to pick for the last one or something. Yes. Also, when we do a movie – when we do a book that's become – that has been covered as a movie – been adapted into a movie like Never Let Me Go. We'll talk about the movie, too, in a separate episode and drop that as a bonus episode only on the Patreon.
0: Yeah. And Maybe we could do, like, Google Hangouts or something so that we can actually all get in a room and talk together about it, too. That would be
1: cool. Ooh. That's exclusive. Yeah, that would be a cool way to do it, too. And then Amazon is the elephant in the room. Ugh. But we know that Audible is kind of like – it's either Audible or it's not, largely, sort of. Yeah,
0: also, like, audiobooks are cool. I know uh, uh, Jess said that – I'm not going to call her Montez. Jess said that um, she uh, uh, listened to it in four hours, and I uh, love audiobooks. I commute to work, um, and it's a two-hour drive, so, like, I devour books by audio. That's a great way to keep up, keep along. If you want to listen to, like, Duck's Newberry board, for example, which is a really long book, and you have a Commute, you can just, like, throw that audiobook on and have that um, play the whole time. Audible is, is great
1: for that. So if you go to cageclub.me slash lottery, there's a banner on there. There's, like, an ad that if you click on that, it's, like, our Amazon affiliates code or whatever. And you get, like, a free audiobook. And I think if you're a Prime member, you get three. I don't know. Do it or don't. Yeah, check it out. Anything else to talk about death in her hands episode 1 of how to win the lottery? I think we're good. Read it. Oh, keep reading.
0: Uh t- that's that's <laughs> Joey's catchphrase. Um this will be the last time that I uh, address Joey's very stupid catchphrase.
1: Keep reading. Um,
0: he can say it, but I'm not going to address it. Today's crime is arson. <laughs>